Hello and welcome to Hungry for Words, the podcast, which I talk to the most interesting people writing about food. I make some of the recipes and then we talk about it and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. Today I'll be talking to Andrea Wynn, an award-winning author of numerous books on the cuisine of her homeland, including the classic Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. We'll talk about her latest book, The Pho Cookbook over steaming bowls of the noodle soup. We'll also talk about dumplings, tofu, and how her family dramatically escaped the war-torn country in 1975. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf, encouraging you to reclaim your kitchen, starting with one home-cooked family meal per week. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com for tips, techniques, and recipes from Wolf Cooking Tools. And by our media partner, foodista.com. Join a passionate community of food lovers at foodista.com. And by our partner, Book Larder, Seattle's community cookbook bookstore. Learn more at booklarder.com. Tomorrow I'm going to interview Andrea, and I have her book, The Pho Cookbook. Forever thought it was pho. I think it's still pronounced pho. And I have to say I've never actually attempted to make pho, but I am really excited about it. So I was looking through it, and she has a whole bunch of different recipes. So she has sort of a classic beef, classic chicken, and they look great, but they also look like they take four or five hours, which I don't really have. So then I was looking at her quick chicken pho which sounded really good and but she said it was pho-ish so it's not really pho but then I'm flipping through and then I see something that she calls pho ga kue rotisserie chicken pho and I was like that has my name all over it and I like this because to me I felt like it was sort of more real stockish because you take the actual chicken carcass, according to a recipe, you take it, you kind of break it up, and then you simmer it along with celery and apple and Napa cabbage and carrot and cilantro. Now I'm taking the star anise, cloves, some coriander seeds and cinnamon, and then um, over medium heat, you toast the spices for several minutes. I'm now going to add some ginger and some onion. And then now I'm going to add in all the chicken and all the other stuff. And I'll let that simmer for about an hour and see how it goes. And now I'm going to strain it. Because I have to say, it smells pretty great. I'm going to put it aside till tomorrow. Hey, welcome to uh, Seattle. Thank you so much. And, you know, I have to say, when I walk through your door, I smell this beautiful fragrance of fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy. I have to tell you, I I started it last night at like nine o'clock and I wasn't done until about midnight because I had to go shopping. I just all of a sudden went, wait, she's coming tomorrow and I've got to go get this stuff and I got to figure out what I'm going to make. And, but I picked the rotisserie chicken one. Is it pho? It's pho if you want to really impress a Vietnamese native speaker. Mm-hmm. But if you just pho? say, yeah, pho, like you're asking a question. Kind of like a valley girl says it, like yeah. pho? Like, yeah, like I want some pho right now. Okay. I want some pho. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's like the most helpful pronunciation guide I have to tell you. <laughs> Always asking a question, add a question mark at the end of the word file. Ah. Yeah. All right. So the other question I have to ask you is how you pronounce your last name. It's uh, pronounced Nguyen, like N hyphen W-I-N. Nguyen. You can always say win, and it would always be like a win-win situation, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) My husband and I were having this whole conversation about last night, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to mispronounce your name, I'm going to say wrong, and so here we go, so it's all good. Your other books were easier. There was Tofu, I can say that. Yeah. That's, you know, pretty clear. And Dumplings, which are, you know... Right. But, Universal. But, you know, fa is a new word for the American English Language Dictionary. And so one of the problems is that we no longer have to put an accent mark on it. So it looks like pho. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Because if you walk around the International District, they all have the, you know. The diet critics. Yeah. Yeah. And those things look so funky. And there's like two of them on that letter O. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people like um, in Vietnamese, when it's just P-H-O without any of the funny little hooky dicky, you know, accent marks, that is pronounced fa. Mm. And once that you get a little side hook on the O, then that is pronounced fa. Mm. But then once that you have a little question mark above the O, it becomes fa. And fa is it, what we're talking about. Correct. You know, fa is a word that... um is based upon a Chinese term for flat rice noodles, fun. Mm. So it doesn't, I don't really believe that there is a precursor for for like the other words for pho and pho. It's just pho. It's almost like a word that Vietnamese people, um, they sort of, they adapted from from um, Cantonese or their pidgin version of Cantonese way back when pho originated in um, the early part of the 20th century. Mm. Interesting. In reading your book, you talk about that being the origin of pho, right? It was in the in the early 20th century. Yes, and there's a lot of um, murky mythology about the origin of pho, and so um, some people have for a while said, "Oh my gosh, you know, it's it came from French poteau pho because look at how pho sounds like pho fire in poteau pho." So, so the the French were in Vietnam at that time as the colonial um, overlords of Vietnam. And um, they began slaughtering a lot of cattle. And the Vietnamese were using the cattle as draft animals, not as food. And um, all of a sudden there were these scraps sitting around. And there was a particular um, water buffalo noodle soup that was being served on the streets in and around Hanoi. So we're talking about the northern part of Vietnam and um, the northern part closest to the border with China. So this noodle soup made with water buffalo had like these little round rice noodles, like rice vermicelli. All of a sudden, there were sales on beef and people didn't have a taste for beef, but the sales were really good. Because the butchers are like, hey, we got to get rid of like these really tough cuts and these bones. And the uh, food vendors were like, oh, here's a business opportunity. And they started switching out the water buffalo for the beef. And then along the way, they were like, you know what? This kind of tastes better with flat rice noodles instead of um, – so we're talking about noodles that that look sort of like pad thai and, um, or linguine shaped. And so they um, made that switch and it became like this hit with a lot of – working class folks who were like working on the shipping merchant ships on 
on the river there in northern Vietnam. And as Hanoi became more urbanized, the noodles spread throughout the city. And so it became this city thing and it became a food vendor thing. So you can imagine like, you know, the 21st century version would be like, you know, like, I don't know, uh, taco truck, you know, Kogi taco trucks gone wild. And so here's like the noodle soups, like, woo, everybody goes crazy for it. And uh, people from all different walks of life come to pho and have pho at the table and they're eating it out on the streets. And I bet it was probably pretty inexpensive if they were making it essentially out of rice noodles and these super cheap cuts of beef. I, I have one question though. Where did the water buffalo come from beforehand? Oh, well, they are like, also a primary um, draft animal in Vietnam hmm. and throughout Southeast Asia. And um, they are placid animals that we love. And so like when you look at Vietnamese art, oftentimes uh, you'll see a little boy, you know, painted atop a water buffalo and everyone in the rice paddy and everyone looks at that and everyone goes, oh, it's the water buffalo. And at certain times, you know, the water buffalo is harvested. Um, but oftentimes the water buffalo um, is just out in the field working. And if you were to travel to Vietnam, you would still see in rural areas um, sometimes, you know, water buffalo roaming. And they have a, a special place in our hearts. Let's try the pho that I made. I will say that I was kind of like, oh, I'm kind of nervous because I'm making this, you know, for the first time and I'm cooking for an expert. I love food that whoever cooks for me. And this smells really, really good. Oh, thanks. I'm not going to talk for that much more. I'm going to talk with my mouth open. Yeah. It's aerating things. <laughs> it's aerating. I like that. I think you did a bang up job. Thank you. Pho is, is about the noodle soup, but it's also about the spices and it's about the experience and it's about the noodles. And I thought to myself, you know, how can I like tell people about making, creating their own pho experience? So the spice um, blend, the pho spice blend really allows me to do that. You know, it's got the star anise and fennel and coriander and cinnamon and clove as well as black pepper. And I'll use it in lieu of five spice. Um, I also will mix it with salt and create like a rub for steaks. So let's talk about the whole condiment thing. Because to me, this has always been part of the whole experience. You go and they bring you all this stuff and how are you supposed to eat it? And, and it's interesting because earlier in the book, you said you guys didn't do that. You were much, much more pure. It's because my parents were both born in northern Vietnam, and their pho experience was one that was not born from bodacious southern Vietnamese living. <laughs> so they both migrated from northern Vietnam to southern Vietnam and settled in Saigon and since like the 50s. And my father was a military governor and he, you know, went all over the provinces and stuff. So they were familiar with Southern food, but there were certain things that, that they're very traditional about. When I was growing up, certain dishes, they'd say, that's a Northern Vietnamese dish. And you're like, got it. <laughs> and so pho to them was a Northern Vietnamese, more of a Northern Vietnamese experience than a Southern Vietnamese experience. And I'll explain that. So the Northern Vietnamese experience is one in which you get a bowl of broth with noodles and cooked beef. You know, sometimes, you know, when my mom had time, then we would include some rare meat as well, like a, you know, steak that was thinly sliced. And she would make the broth um, and cooked up, 
cook up the meats on on Saturday, and then we would have pho for um, breakfast on Sunday for brunch. And we would always be like, nope, no time for donuts. <laughs> After 8 o'clock mass, we're driving home to make pho. And we like get in an assembly line, and she'd be like telling us what to do and all that. And so I sat down to, to pho. And we didn't have bean sprouts. We did not have sriracha, of which my mom said, that's Thai. That's not Vietnamese. We did not have hoisin sauce unless um, we had uh, meatballs, at which point my mom would be like, okay, you can have a little side of hoisin sauce, and then you can dip your meatballs in there. And she was very strict because she had spent all this time making her pho broth, and she was not going to let us like doctor it up and ruin it. She would send someone like my brother out to the yard to pick some mint. We did not have Thai basil because to her, as a northerner, mint was the herb that went with pho as a garnish. And it still is the case when you go to Hanoi. Mint is totally overlooked in America as um, an herb that is used in Vietnamese cooking when you go out. But when you go into a Vietnamese market, you see all this damn mint. Regular (laughs) spearmint as well as the spicy mint when it's summertime. Um, So there are two kinds of mint that people use. In Vietnam, there's even like more kinds. So we didn't get the Thai basil. You know, we got the cilantro as a, as a garnish in the bowl already. Um, and I was totally, you know, that's how I grew up. And it wasn't until we started going out to pho shops in Little Saigon in Orange County that I was like, oh, look, they bring things out to the table. <laughs> and there are other herbs aside from mint. In fact, there is no mint on that plate. And my mom wouldn't say anything. And even nowadays, when we go out to pho on occasion, I'll like I'll say, "Come on, let's go out to pho," and she'd be like, "All right." She's eighty-two, and we go out to pho, and she's like, she adds a Thai basil to her bowl. <laughs> and then there's this other herb called sawtooth herb or culantro. She'll add some of that too. No limes, absolutely no lime. I mean, it's, it was like this thing where she had these rules, and she taught us this is how you eat pho. This is how I grew up with it, and there was a certain rigidity about it because I think for her. This was a food that was one of the foods that was a ballast for her, and she wasn't going to let it go. And what do you mean by that? Well, when they came over here, it was so hard. And, you know, we were family of seven, and, you know, I, I'm i 48 years old, and my father was 45 when he came over here, and my mom was 42, and they have five kids with them. So imagine if you, like, had to just uproot, pack two suitcases like we're talking carry-ons <laughs> so like very small and over the equivalent of an overnight bag and a tote bag is what we traveled with for seven people and then go to a brand new country and try to figure out how the society works learning new languages and cultures and and my parents knew a certain amount of english before um, when they were living in vietnam but it was still really difficult and one of the things that kept them going was you know, we spoke Vietnamese at home and we sat down to a Vietnamese dinner every night. And even when we were trying out new foods, and we were really, really excited about butter and all this stuff. So my sisters and I would like look through Good Housekeeping and Family Circle magazines. In the 70s, we we're like, wow, look at this thing called a brownie. <laughs> or they make this stuff called spaghetti. <laughs> and we would try and make or a burrito. And, and back then, those um, chili packages, uh, the spice mixes were really popular um, in the 1970s and early 80s. And we'd be like, 
we can make chili. <laughs> and then so we would, exotic. It was so exotic to us. You know, meanwhile, like my mom would be sending my brother out um, to the yard to like chop a banana leaf down. Out of he would, she'd send him out with a machete. <laughs> We'd be like, we hope the neighbors aren't looking because he's out there with a machete cutting down this banana leaf. Like how old would he be in this scenario? <laughs> yeah. Like eight or nine years old. Right? Here's right. your machete. But he wasn't like into cooking. <laughs> so we, she had to give him a job. Right. <laughs> so like, Here's a machete, kid. Go outside and get me that leaf. <laughs> Try not to cut off your arm. Right. Well, meanwhile, you know, we're like having like burritos and spaghetti and chili and and brownies. But with the savories, we always had to have um, rice. She would say, I don't care what you what we make, but we, we need to have rice at every meal. Hmm. So, you know, for her, she's not going to let go of certain things because it's part of who she is. And I've heard that with a lot of, of um, immigrants because, you know, you're trying to like Keep a semblance of of yourself while you're you're navigating unknown territory, and those were those were fun and exciting times for our family, but they were also very very stressful times. You know, and I think that that's such an interesting point because I, you know, you've kind of lost everything, right? I mean, your family came here and left everyone they knew behind, right? There's your safety net is gone. You're in this new place, and to me, I could see that comfort in tasting home. Like if, if you can approximate that as close as you can. And I think, you know, that's why we have so many different foods in America. I mean, if you can imagine the United States without pizza or spaghetti or, you know, even, um, you know, hamburgers or <laughs> so many different foods are really derivative of those immigrants who came here and wanted to taste home. The supermarkets back then were not what they are now. And so, you know, that's why ethnic markets have played a big role in my work. But at the same time, if I'm going to succeed in getting people to explore Asian food, I always in the back of my mind think, what can I do with supermarket ingredients? And so when I started working on the Banmi handbook, my fourth book, I was like, all right, so I can get people hooked into Vietnamese food and culture through a sandwich. Everybody loves a sandwich. And this is a sandwich that's like a have-it-your-way sandwich. It's like a hamburger, essentially. It's a sandwich that is an amalgam of cultures. It tells people about Vietnamese history and colonization. And it tells people about cultural survival. Because Vietnam's one of these countries where they're like, oh, yeah, come on in, foreign intruders. And we'll let you like hang out and we're also going to learn from you. And then we're going to make your ideas our own because at some time you're going to leave and we're going to be here and we're going to keep going and keep moving ahead. And so it's almost like this folding and unfolding of ideas and this growing of the culture and Bun Mi is one of them. Um, and I really didn't think I had that much to say about pho because I was like, I wrote two recipes about the noodle soup. That's all I have to say. And that was in my first book. And I really love those recipes and worked very hard on them. But my publisher, as well as a number of my friends on Facebook and some of my, the people that took cooking classes from me, they're like, you should write a pho book. And I was like, why? And they're like, you have things to say. I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and my editor is like, you go think about it. 
<laughs> come back and talk to us. And so I did some research, and that's where like the story of pho became so compelling for me. It is a food unlike even unlike banh mi. Pho is the embodiment of the Vietnamese experience in the 20th and 21st century, in the sense that it was born out of colonialism. It was born out of cultures rubbing shoulders. Um, there was like protest poems written about pho, you know, to galvanize Vietnamese nationalism. You know, pho, a pho shop was used like for espionage during the Vietnam War, you know, and the, the Viet Cong were using this pho shop in Saigon to make plans and move weapons around for the Tet Offensive. Um, and pho has been part of like raps. There was a rap that was done um, here in Seattle based upon, upon the pho bak family, the farms. And there are novels that have been written about pho. And then also now pho is like this thing that people see as like not just a replacement for ramen, but just like a good noodle soup. And I think that um, the the broth being clear and the noodles being what they are, it's very, very reminiscent of like an American chicken noodle soup experience. Let's back up to one of your, uh, a couple of your earlier books. So the first book that I think I bought of yours was your Asian dumpling book, which was super successful and, and very, I mean, I can say this, you, you know, you probably don't going to go, and it was a finalist for the James Beard Awards and the ISCP Awards and many other things and heavily lauded and, you know, throughout the food world, but it was, it was a, it was a big book. I remember hearing about it and I bought it. And it was such an interesting book because to me, I felt that, you know, you kind of took this one element of, I mean, I, I saw this picture of you as a little girl rolling your dumplings as a kid and led that into an exploration of all the things that unite us together, which is basically happy, fun food wrapped up in some kind of dough. And I know you specified that you kept it in Asia, in a specific part of Asia, but talk about that book and how that came about. And also, I want to hear about you making dumplings as a little girl. Well, you know, um, I came to food writing as someone who, we were refugees to America. My family came here in 1975. We were lucky to leave Vietnam um, a week before the fall of Saigon. And one of the things that really interested my family when we came here was all the food ingredients that we didn't have access to when we were um, in Vietnam. Things like, you know, white flour and sugar and butter and, you know, milk and cheese. And um, so we really explored food. And we also made um, food that was very dear to us and part of our identity. And we didn't live near other many other Vietnamese people. And so we just ended up making a lot of our food. And um, and I wanted to chronicle that some way to tell the story of Vietnamese people and Vietnamese food in Vietnam and then how it was transplanted to the United States. So the first book was Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. It did very, very well. And, you know, um, garnered a lot of, of award nominations and stuff. And then I just thought I was done. I thought to myself, I have nothing left to say. I wrote, you know, it's like first book, Denzo. 
But my publisher, 10 Speed Press, came back and they said, you know, you're kind of good at this. And we really like how you write instructions and they're very detailed. And you should write about dumplings. And I was like, well, I make a lot of dumplings. I eat a lot of dumplings. I've been making them since I was like a kid because I was, as the youngest in my family, my mom um, looked to me as like her little kitchen assistant. She had five kids and four of us were girls. And I don't know if it was the same with your family, Kathleen, but, you know, it was kind of like my mom identified the kids who were kind of good at certain domestic tasks. So I had a sister who's now an, an, a high-powered attorney, but she was a good dishwasher. And so my mom looked at me and she's like, oh, I could like train her to make rice. And then she's going to graduate to wontons. And so, and we couldn't afford, you know, after-school programs. And so my mom would hand me like two or three packets of wonton skins and said, hey, this is your project for the day. And I had to busy myself um, folding these wonton skins and, you know, and, and filling them and folding them. And then the, the benefit was like cooking them. And then we made potstickers. So my sisters and I would compete making potstickers. Like the way we would compete making rice paper rolls, we would say like, okay, who can place the shrimp in the right place in the rice paper so that the rolls would look really pretty. I mean, it was like stuff, you know, it's because a lot of Asian food is this communal stuff. And even though with, and with Vietnamese food, the ingredients are very simple, but somehow they come together synergistically. And um, similarly, dumplings are the same way. So when I, when I tackled Asian dumplings, my first question to 10 Speed Press was, is America really ready to make, you know, wrappers from scratch? Because I was like, hey, you know, we can just use package wrappers, you know, and they're like, yeah, we're re- they're ready. You know, you go ahead and you do it. And so, but one of the, the things that I tackled was what is dumplings? Because in, in my writing, I realized from the get-go with Into the Vietnamese Kitchen that the recipes and the techniques need to be solid in my books because that print is forever. And I've been reading cookbooks since I was 10 years old. And um, I respect people who are going to buy books, keep books, and use books. And it's an honor for me to be in their homes via my, my, my cookbooks. But I want to also use the recipes as a way to get people to delve deeper, to tell the story of something, to tell the story of the human experience. So with dumplings, I saw this opportunity to frame it in the scope of what the hell is Asia? And what the hell is a dumpling? What does it mean for people? Why do we make them? Why are we so obsessed with them? Why are they so cozy and friendly and and comforting foods? And so, you know, that's how I got into the subject was, first of all, you know, I'm interested in the subject, but then how do I, frankly... From my perspective, how do I keep my mojo, my, what is my muse? What is my motivation from the beginning to the end of the book? And I write my books in order to share information with people and to educate people. I'm not a person who's like there to say, oh my gosh, look what a rock star I am. But I'm really like there trying to coach people to help them be confident cooks in subjects that they're kind of like going, what? You know, I'm totally unfamiliar with dumplings or Vietnamese food, or I kind of know what a potsticker is, but I really don't know how they're, how they uh, come together, how I cook them, can you freeze them? And so, you know, I, um, that's what I did with, with the dumpling book. 
And then after that one, one day my mom calls me up and she says, you know, I have this friend, Mrs. So-and-so. She's moved to Africa. She asked me if you know how to make tofu. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) We had bought our tofu all through the times when I was growing up. We would um, buy them um, at Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's has fabulous tofu because there's a high turnover rate. And they had always had like this connection with the Pacific. And we were living in Southern California. My, my parents still live there where Trader Joe's was like this, you know, has like their flagship stores and originate and stuff. And so she was like, oh, Trader Joe-san tofu. Yeah, you know, that was her thing. <laughs> and then when we go to Little Saigon, we would get um, fresh tofu from the tofu vendors there. And so tofu to us was like fresh bread. It was nothing that was foreign. I just thought it was like a protein thing. I did not know about the American perspective toward tofu until I moved to Santa Cruz in the late 90s. And I went to a vegetarian, hippie-ish restaurant, and they put cheese sauce on their tofu. What? It was like this totally- like a crime against food. I know, but it was like this thing that was like totally from the 70s, Kathleen, and I was- totally unaware because I was a refugee kid in the 70s trying to learn English. I was not paying attention to tofu. And all of a sudden I was paying attention to tofu and I was like, that is a travesty. I was appalled. I was like, what the hell are they doing to my little tofu? (laughs) And so um, I thought, okay, with this book, I could tell the story of tofu, what it is, where it came from. Because there was a lot of... um, misunderstanding about tofu in the U.S. people, it was like one of the most polarizing foods um, in a survey. Um, I think the survey was during the Reagan era. (laughs) I can see it being a a, a bad thing during the Reagan era. Yeah. Yeah. You know, war against drugs, you know, (laughs) war against tofu. (laughs) And so... Minimum sentencing for using tofu in a recipe. This is your brain on tofu. (laughs) 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 And, And so... That was a book that, again, I I work with 10-Speed Press on, and it was a way to showcase tofu in all its different guises. And one of the things about tofu is that it can be friends with meat. Um, It's not a food of deprivation. And in the U.S., it's it's perceived as a diet food. But I was just like, God damn it, I'm going to put this book out there. I'm going to like have like people can make tofu from scratch, just like they did in the 70s, you know? And it's a zillion times better, and there are all these wonderful things that you can do with tofu. And the book came out in 2012, and all of a sudden, people were like, you know, restaurants started making mapo tofu that, you know, and people started paying attention to it, not just on Chinese menus, but on like hip restaurant menus. And so I I feel like, you know, in, in every single one of my books, I'm trying to do something to push the envelope on something. So that's what the, the tofu book was about. And... Those single subject books, Dumplings and Tofu, really took a lot out of me because I was tackling like all of Asia. So you got to say, well, what's Asia? And people tend to think that Asia is monolithic, right? But Asia is not. You know, to me, the the actual sort of geopolitical borders of Asia are hard to define. It, they are. You're absolutely right. And um, they've shifted over the, the centuries. And um, the Chinese were everywhere. The Indians were everywhere. 
And, um, you know, what is Eurasia, right? Right. Yeah, I, right? <laughs> what is Eurasia? Do we all remember that on the maps from way back when we were kids? It's like a catch-all. Right. It's like it's Europe and Asia. Right. Just keep going, you know, east and west. <laughs> and and so you do have, but, but, you know, that is what food affords for us. You know, I think one of the things that I really, is a constant theme in, in talking to you and, and hearing you say, you know, I really want to explain this to people is, I like how accessible your work is. And I, even when I was making, you know, the pho, I was saying, wow, she's really very specific. You know, you're going to add 10 cups of water and you'll end up with eight. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, Andrea, I measured it and you were dead on. Woo-hoo! It was exactly eight cups. I was like, wow, I'm really impressed. And, you know, and I think, too, I always write with the idea of giving home cooks sort of a sense of forgiveness. Like if things don't work out, like in your dumpling book, you're like, okay, here are some things I learned. One, you can eat your mistakes and it doesn't matter what they look like. They're still delicious. You know, being able to extend that kind of sense of confidence. One of the best conversations that I've had over the years with colleagues in food was with you a number of years ago. And we talked about the lack of confidence that home cooks have because Many people don't have the benefit of a mom or dad or auntie or grandmother really showing them the ropes and making them feel like, oh, yeah, I can do this. Mm -hmm. So we used to have in America and in many other cultures a more common body of knowledge about cooking techniques and about ingredients because, number one, people cooked more, right? And number two, they kind of cooked the same food because they didn't travel that much. And lo and behold, the internet didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In James Beard's American Cookery, there's a, a an instruction line where you're told to like try the bacon and it meant to fry the bacon. Mm. And I was like, well, he and his editor obviously realized that people knew what that meant. Right. And Americans did. But now, you know, number one, we have to tell people what kind of cut the bacon is. Should it be smoked or unsmoked? You know, like how long this should be frying it. I mean, we're, because cooks nowadays come to preparing food with a certain amount of performance anxiety. I, and it's one of the reasons why I picked the rotisserie pho out right. of your book. The reality is that more people will probably make this rotisserie chicken version, which I thought was great of you because I thought it made it so accessible. You know, that came from the fact that I'm a Costco shopper. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and so similarly at Whole Foods, you know, so I would go to Whole Foods and I would also look at the rotisserie chickens and people are buying them as a, you know, they don't want a roast chicken. They think roast chicken is difficult. On occasion, I would buy a roast chicken because I wanted to save time. And then I looked at the carcass and I'm like, shoot. That's like good stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is a whole um, tradition and proclivity in American cooking to make roast chicken broth or roast turkey you know, soup after Thanksgiving. And I thought to myself, if I want to get Americans really into making pho, I need to make pho fit their lives. So in the pho cookbook, there are many different ways to make pho. You know, you can make it, you know, with canned broth that you doctor up. You can use a pressure cooker. You can do a long simmer. And then you can also repurpose like leftovers, like the rotisserie chicken, because at the heart of pho 
it's a resourceful food. It's a make, it's like genius make do cooking. So if I can use rotisserie pho to underscore that aspect of what pho is foundationally, then I feel that that is like a double win for me um, in terms of getting people to understand what pho is and then coaxing, coaching them to make it themselves. So you came here as a refugee, as a child in the 1970s from Vietnam. And what was that experience like? Well, you know, I was um, six years old. And growing up in Vietnam in the 70s, I knew there was something going on because my parents were monitoring the political unfolding that was going on. And my dad had planned a, a boat escape. So he knew something was going down. And so he gathered other families together. They pooled money together to buy and renovate a cargo boat. So he would take me, because I was like his little sidekick because I was the youngest, and he would like put me in the car and we would drive to um, take a look at the boat and kind of check it out, what was going on. So I was like, okay, we're going to get on this boat. And... um my mom late at night would be sewing um, life jackets because they didn't sell life jackets in Vietnam in the 70s. And in between the styrofoam pieces, um, she slid these very flat pieces of gold as currency. Um, and in Vietnam at that time, it's like if you had gold, then at least anywhere you went in the world, you could at least spend that currency. But anyway, so um, we had this boat, and um, during the month of April in 1975, as my father was, like, monitoring all the Paris Match magazines that were coming out, and he was, like, watching the news, and he's like, Vietnam is going under, and we need to get out. But the government in Saigon forbade all non-official boats from leaving the port. So we were stuck, mm. and we had no way to leave. Wow. So he just totally abandoned the plans. And he went all over Saigon trying to find an American who could get us out. And he had all these contacts. And he says, you know, at that time, they were all like CAA types. And everyone was like, ah, don't worry, we'll help you, you know. But then my aunts, who had been working for the US State Department, they came and they, my oldest aunts came and said to my dad, I have a way out. And I can take one of your daughters, one of your kids. And then when you come over, you'll be reunited. My, my dad said, I don't care about sending one of my kids with you. I want to send the whole family. So she had American contact, um, who was a former State Department employee. And he came back like 15 days. So in the, before the fall of Saigon. So like around April 15th. And he was trying to get out every single Vietnamese person that he had worked with at, in Saigon at the time. And he met with my aunt. Um, at the cathedral in Saigon. And at that, on that day, my family had packed our two little valises and we were sitting in a car across the way from the cathedral. And we were waiting for my aunt to come out to say whether it was like a yes or a no. And she came out and she nodded to my dad. And my dad's like, okay, we get to go. Wow. <laughs> that must have been 
I, I can't even imagine the stress and anxiety. Yeah. On the part of your parents, probably they didn't make you realize it. No, at the time. they didn't. They were just like, okay, you get to pack one set of pajamas and a pair of underwear. That's it. We're going. And we don't know if we're going to go, but we're going to get in the car. And, you know, Vietnam is either hot or hotter. <laughs> so there were like seven of us in the car. And we had a driver. Labor is inexpensive in a developing country. My dad really, you know, he very, very much had a soft spot for his driver. And he offered to bring the driver too. And the driver said, no, I have a family and I have to stay here. So my dad said, you take whatever you want in the house. We were able to bring our housekeeper. Um, and so we snuck through the, um, the gates at Tentanet Airport, which is the main airport in Saigon. If you can get through the gates, then you are like golden. And everyone was trying to get through the gate. And that was, um, a week before the fall of Saigon. And once you're in the airport grounds and you have your paperwork, then you're like set to go. And we were able to go out on, um, a transport plane. And I have to tell you, you know, that sounds very dramatic, but it is nothing compared to someone leaving by boat a few days later even. And I have friends who um, came here after like, you know, the third or fourth time of trying to escape or their parents tell these stories, you know, pirates or, or I have friends who are separated at the refugee camps from like their parents you know, and it's by comparison, I like to say that we had the business class tickets out of Vietnam because I'm very, very aware at how fortunate my family is. Americans either sort of are compassionate and have empathy for refugees or they're afraid of them. And it really seems like there's not a lot of middle ground. And and I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on that, given the fact that you're a refugee yourself. I mean, I think particularly this amped up fear around refugees coming to the United States and we have to protect our own and and everything else, which seems incongruous with the idea that, you know, give us your poor and you're hungry and we're a nation of immigrants. But I, I wondered what your take was on that. Well, you know, when Vietnamese people came here and we started out in Southern California, my parents still live there, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of emotion about the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And by and large, we were welcomed by Americans that we met. We were different. We were weird. You know, we didn't look like people in this little beach town that we settled in called San Clemente. But my dad said, if it's good enough for a president of the United States, he was talking about Nixon, it's good enough for me. And they still live there. I think nowadays, it's that kind of emotional connection or tie to these refugees that are coming out of, you know, the Middle East or, and, and through Europe are not the same. We don't, you know, people don't have that, that, that emotional connection and they fear that, that those folks are going to come here and take something um, and threaten them. But I think that it's a very difficult situation to weigh and decide upon, but I think that people who want to come to America, it's like, that's like winning the lottery ticket. That's not like people wanting to come here and do harm, you know, and, and, and the stuff that's, that has gone down in America, you know, that 
have been labeled terrorist acts were like done by people who were born here, who've lived here a long time, you know? And, and I think that, you know, you can say, well, you know, their friends and family members should have been paying attention. And I totally agree with that. If your brother or sister, you know, are getting together to practice shooting, <laughs> they're like ordering a lot of ammunitions arriving at their house. You want to look into that. But, you know, those those incidents are really far and few between. So thinking that refugees or even immigrants who are coming here to work, you know, or people who have been doing um, farm labor, undocumented immigrants, we have to be realistic about how those people can contribute to our society in a positive way, and then come up with, with policies that will enable them to be part of our society in a constructive manner. We learned English when we came here, and we, but we also maintained our Vietnamese language skills. And then my dad's like, well, you're here, and you know we all want you to pick up a third language because you need to be able to communicate with more people. So it was either Spanish or French. And (laughs) I picked Spanish because he was very practical. He's like, if you're going to get along with people, if you're going to make it in this country or anywhere, you need to speak the language. And then you need to speak not just one language, but two languages. And then you need to communicate with like people that you can see around you as being like, you know, people that you need to get along with. So for him, that was a survival issue. And learning about American culture is a thing for my mom, too, language-wise. So like recently, I, I, I taught my mom the term of like someone having too much baggage. <laughs> I love it. That's a great idiom. Yeah. Right. And, I, and we were talking about one of my siblings, and I said, you know, mom, so-and-so has a lot of baggage. And she's like, you're right. <laughs> and then a few months later, we were talking about this sibling of mine who I will leave unnamed. And she said, so-and-so's got baggage to deal with. And I was like, yeah, mom. <laughs> she's like, she's, because she's all, they want to be in with what's going on. You know, we have so much more in common than we realize. You know, and I, I think when you learn other languages, you find that. Yeah. And I think Americans don't get that because so many Americans are monolingual, you know, they just speak English and Right, you know. right. And gosh, you know, there were times where my mom would say to me, you know, people used to come would say to me, Mrs. Huang, I don't understand your English and my mom's like, I'm trying my hardest and my mom would say to me, and you know, I have to work really hard to understand their Vietnamese. <laughs> oh gosh well this has been so great chatting with you thank you so very much my guest today has been Andrea Wynn You can learn more about her and all of her amazing books at vietworldkitchen.com. You can get her recipe for rotisserie chicken pho with some extra tips on buying things such as Napa cabbage and star anise at hungryforwords.show. You can also order her book from our partner, Book Larder, by visiting booklarder.com. You may even be able to snag a signed one. 
This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf Cooking Tools and their Reclaim the Kitchen initiative. Wolf invites you to reclaim your kitchen and your family time by preparing your own twist on the traditional thought tonight. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com to learn more. Today's show is produced by the awesome Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at KathleenFlynn.com. That's it for our show. See you in two weeks with a new episode of Hungry for Words. Until then, eat well and be kind.